What's up, everybody? This is Dylan Lovento, and you're listening to the Spawn On Me Wardcast Collab Couch for E3 2019. We partner with our amazing friends over at Spawn On Me for some great interviews and discussions during E3. We'll be switching between podcast feeds for all our content from the show. So if you want to listen to all of our talks, you'll definitely want to check out both of our feeds. As always, Wardcast can be found right here at ward-games.com, on Twitter at WardVideoGames, or by searching Wardcast in your podcast app of choice. And you can find Spawn on Me on their website at spawnon.me, at Spawn on Me on Twitter, or by going into your podcast app of choice and searching Spawn on Me. We're back at E3 2019. I'm Dylan Vento, and on this segment, I'm joined by Adam and Becca Saltzman of Finji. Hey, Adam. How are you doing? I'm good. You good? That's good. Yeah, I'm good. Becca, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm hot. LA yes. is like miserably hot right now. And that's not always the case, I heard? No, last year was nice. Yeah. It's like oppressive this year. I was talking to Kelly Wallach yesterday about it, and yeah, they said it's, it's even worse in San Francisco, apparently. And they don't have yeah, AC. it's it's 300 degrees in San Francisco and everything has caught on fire is my understanding. Yeah. So I literally said that I was like, oh, everything's on fire. And then both Kelly and Robin Haneke freaked out because they're like, oh, you mean like literally on fire? I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. no, there literally are brush fires spreading oh, in are like there? the East Bay. Yeah. Right. Cool. Awesome. Uh, and there's rolling brownouts because nobody's like AC can keep up with the temps and it's um, yeah. I haven't been on the news at all in the last like week. So oh, I haven't either, but we have staff. In the oh, East Bay. that's what's coming. That's true. I also okay. haven't been, been on our Slack. Like, hey, I'm I'm doing my best, but my laptop battery is about to run out, and we don't have power right now. And um, something's on fire. Something out here. Mm, okay, cool. Good luck. On what project? Uh, on Overland. Oh, okay. Oh, you probably don't know this person yet, because uh, they came on right around GDC, so you haven't met them. Oh, I haven't. Uh, yeah, it's our QA. Yeah, our QA is up in the San Francisco oh, area. Okay. Her name's okay. Heather. She's okay. awesome. Yes. Um, I think I think there's been mention on the Discord about it. Um, cool. Let's talk about weather. You guys have terrible weather in Michigan. <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah. Well, like, well, winter weather. We, let, let me okay. be more specific. So we get some snow. Yeah, some people complain about it like incessantly. Michigan face anybody who lives in Michigan like their Facebook all winter is just like. Come, it doesn't matter what it is, but there was like this really funny moment in the spring this year, or maybe it was last year. I can't remember, but like the, the local weather guy, last year. yeah, the local weather guy in Grand Rapids was just like talking about like the eight day forecast or whatever. And it was going to be crappy. It was like that normal, like it's going to be like, you know, 55 and sunny today. And then it's going to like drop 20 degrees and it's going to go back up and then drop. Cause it's, I mean, come on, you live like in normal temperate climate and like the best Michigan weather is like 33 degrees Fahrenheit and pouring rain. It's the worst. Like one degree Celsius pouring rain. Okay. That's like late March. It is hellish. But so this guy's like talking about this and you can tell it's the end of winter and like the anchors like off screen just go, oh, and he's like, (laughs) what? What do you want to tell me? He Fine, became, yeah, it's it going like, to be sunny, sunny every day. Is that what you want? You know, it's just like it was like a meme. He like he was yeah. got, got to the third or fourth day of, and it's going to be twenty degrees again. And we also have a kind of weather in Michigan that they call light wintry mix. 
Okay. Which it sounds is, like a, like a coffee flavor. Yeah, and it's it's really them putting a spin on like there's gonna be precipitation. Some of it's gonna be frozen. It's like rhyme. some of it isn't. It's yeah. Uh, it's like this. It's yeah. Yeah, we have there's a special thing. It's not hail or snow, but it's called rhyme, and it's this like dry pellets pellets of snowy ice. And um, we have all sorts of awful <laughs> things that come out of the sky. Unique weather. Yeah, but I, he's like four. He's like four days into this eight day forecast, and there's like audible sighing from the other anchors. And, <laughs> uh, uh, like because we kind of work out of our home, like I have to drive the, like our kids to school and stuff. So I'm like out in it or whatever. But I don't have to do like there's this Michigan thing. Where it's like you got to in order to get out of your driveway some days, especially where we live, which is over in Lake Effect. Like you're just out at like six thirty a.m. Like like shoveling the driveway or snow blowing or whatever. And like that legit sucks. Like that's the coldest part of the day is like before the sun comes up. Um, but we don't have to do that because we just walk to our studio and our house to work. So like, I understand why people complain about it like all the time. Cause we just go out in the middle of the day when it's warmest to like clear the drive. Um, but I kind of like it. We lived in Austin for 13 years. So like, I love the fact that we have spring and fall again and like having kids in the snow is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. If kids we had love like, snow. like my, if my brother needs to get to work, it's like a 45 minute drive one way and doing that in the weather conditions that exist in Michigan. Most of the time yeah. is like a, a pretty big dice roll uh, on a day to day basis. But um, yeah, in Austin, the only there was um, the two seasons were summer and ice month. Um, or ice week, ice I think week. Ice week. Yeah, yeah, summer and ice week where you're like shark seasons. week, uh, sort kind of. of. Yeah, it was just like uh, shut down the city with an ice storm. Yeah. Um, but like, I really like so I complain about the LA weather, but it's also because I'm stuck on pavement. But in Austin, like, it's really hot, but I didn't mind the summers. But as soon as we had kids, summers were hell because mm. like tiny humans can't be out in that heat, and also the sun is going to fry your skin and you're going to die of skin cancer by the time you're 25. So it's like just kind of stuck in the AC. So it's kind of miserable once you had kids because like they have to go to bed at a certain time, and the best part of summer is to like go out to the patios kind of as the sun is setting right after it sets and you just like hang out on the patios with your friends at night. But you can't do that when you have like tiny babies at home. It's pretty tricky. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Austin was less fun <laughs> when we had kids. It was, it was sometimes good for like work, like especially before we had kids, you could get up in the morning when it was still survivable yeah. and you could go exercise and get some breakfast and you'd come back and it would become inhumanely hot and but that was fine because you had work to do anyway. So you'd sit in the AC, work on your computer for a while. Sun would go down and then you could go mow the lawn and walk your dogs and go sit on a patio somewhere. And like that was a pretty humane lifestyle. But as soon as you lose the opportunity to do that, if anything ever happens to your mornings or evenings, then now you are a weird like it's like a, a dystopian future civilization where people can't go outside of their house because of a poison or something. And uh, you just feel like you live in an airport all the time or something. It's weird. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, your studio at home. And I was kind of curious how you guys do like a home studio setup. Like how do you balance that with like also having kids? And like you, I know you've mentioned before, Becca, on like tweets and whatnot. Just uh, <laughs> I'll shout on Twitter about having uh, children during snow so days. I mean, yes. like door, door locks are really important. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, acoustic foam oh, oh, okay. uh, is astonishingly effective. It, it's almost, yeah. I think it's al almost um, counterintuitively effective. Uh, like you get this cheap stuff that's really like loud. you should store eggs in it. And yeah. 
suddenly that just makes your office better. It's very weird, but it totally works. Yeah. Um, probably this week is the worst week to ask me. Like, so my kids got out of school on the 31st or our kids got out of school on the 31st. So I, a month ago set up a nanny to take care of last week and Monday before we came to E3. Um, and she backed out Sunday night just for Monday and then backed out for the rest of the time on Monday night. Legitimate, like legitimate legit family reason, emergency. Yeah, sure. Legit yeah. reasons. But, but also, oh my God, I set up six days of childcare at a very high premium because I pay really well to ensure that I have somebody show up because it's like so important that somebody takes these goblins. Especially like we have a milestone coming house. up and it's, we want, we, uh, it's, we feel like it's good to, if we're going to spend time working, we want it to be quality work yes. time. We don't want it to be weird 50, 50 work time where we're doing bad work and being bad parents. Like, yeah. Oh, I want to pick one and do that thing well, and then switch modes and do that other thing well. Uh, and, but also we want the kids to be able to mostly like, um, have, uh, engaging time, even if we're not super available temporarily because a work thing is happening. So like right yeah. now they're at my folks place out on Lake Michigan yep. and we feel like I feel no guilt about having nope. to come to LA to work for a couple of days sure. because they're getting spoiled and building sandcastles and doing art projects mm -hmm. and like having a perfectly fine time. Like they're excited for us to leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the situation I was in last week was I have to, a ton of work to get done. They're in the house and they want to play in the hose. They want to go in and out all day. They want somebody to like help set up the games. They want to like, they're constantly fighting because I have to leave them up to their own devices for a little bit, which means they end up rabbit holing down. I'm like, well, he said this and he said this and then he touched me. And now we're having like, you know, world war three on the staircase um, and it was just kind of like, or they're tempting you with stuff that you want to yeah, do. Yeah, like they're like, come out and play can Smash. we go? Can we wow. go have ice cream and play Pokemon Go? And At then the we want to play gardens? Smash Brothers all day. And then we want to go out and have this treat. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, that these good. are amazing ideas. Yeah. I can't do any of this. Can you come to the park with us, mommy? And then we can get yeah. ice cream and we can also battle this gym because they love Pokemon Go right now. So I'm like, yeah, whatever, fine, we'll play it. And like. In, in my brain, I'm just like, oh my gosh, yes, yes, I do. And also I'm prepping for E3 and we're coming up on our beta milestone and I have to enter certain lot check at the end of this month. And I love you so much. The reason I hired a human to set up the hose and the sprinklers for you this week. So then I didn't feel this guilt about like, is this your first week of summer vacation? And also, so you would have a ton of fun. You wouldn't notice that I'm context, busy. Like if they're asking me like, dad, you should play smash with us. <laughs> like that's a little bit loaded for me. Cause I love to play some smash brothers, but also what they're really saying is like, do you want to cathartically crush us over and over <laughs> and over again? And like, yeah, like I badly want this is like a, important for my, my emotional health as a parent. Right. Uh, and defeating yeah. my child. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We've, so it's happened a couple of times where like Adam will completely destroy them. Cause he's pretty good at Pikachu. And like, he'll come into the kitchen while I'm cooking dinner and he's like, so I just did this like really funny thing and I feel terrible because our kids are six and eight and I'm like, oh my God, are they crying? He's like, no. It's like just slapstick enough. Like yeah. smash is just slapstick yeah. enough that if you do something really mean, it probably looks pretty funny still. But like, I don't try to like be a it huge jerk when we play, but like every <laughs> once in a while, like a scenario 
uh, uh, emerges in the game and you instinctively react to it. You're sure. like, oh, their jump arc is just like, they're getting, like, I can't yeah. not spike them. My thumbs already spiked them. Yes. Right. <laughs> and then you realize. <laughs> I've already summoned the thunder. It's yeah, already come down. It's already happening. And then you realize, oh, they're on their last life. Yeah. Uh, and they had it set to stock because they weren't thinking. And this, I just remembered they've never played this character before either. Uh, but it's always really like they're so happy to be playing that they kind of don't care. But like Adam and I are snickering in the kitchen because, yeah, eight year old who's overly confident just got like totally owned. Yeah. In the best way possible. He plays right. a game for four minutes. He's ready to trash talk everybody that sits down to play it. Oh, they trash talk me. Okay, we were joking about like anytime the boys say something absolutely insane, we'll like text friends. So they have a tendency to uh, eight explain and six explain video. Well, six year old doesn't because he's a sweetheart, but the eight year old has uh, attained eight explaining. And he eight splains. This so was initially seven splaining. Yeah, he's just been. He's like a nine slice. What is this? No, when when kids, kids a lot of Ugh. kids turn seven years old, they. Um, and I think this lasts until they're about 30. Uh, <laughs> they are convinced that they n pretty much have everything figured out. Mm. Um, and our eight year old. But they still know exactly as much as a six year old, okay. which is to say, not a lot. I'm 27, so I don't know what you're trying to tell me, Adam, in this <laughs> indirect way. Uh, so anytime anything comes up, it's like if um, every classic, every like dog pile you've ever seen on Twitter where somebody's like, Oh, I, uh, uh, you know, like the, say the person that wrote a new movie is like, I thought it turned out pretty good. And then somebody comes on, they're like, well, I thought though something or other was, uh, and like, they didn't write the movie. Um, but they're so convinced that they are really the primary knowledge holder of whatever topic is going on. And then everybody makes fun of them a lot. Sure. Um, but having like a seven or eight year old is like that, all the time is just in your house. And that's how they talk about everything. Yeah. Every waking so, hour. So he's, he's confident that he knows everything about every game that he's ever seen, which is not or very many of. or heard of or everything. He's confident he knows everything. So he pedantically explains wrong the way video games work. Oh, oh. psychologically, this to stuff me, kind of makes sense. Cause like the way kids do things is they like, like information is coming at them all the time. They're absorbing it. And then they're occasionally um, regurgitating it in different formats, yeah. different combinations. Some word like, salad. Well, yeah, they, they, they emerge they, and they're like, I've been, I've been picking up all this stuff. Let me try this out. Yeah. Um, and then they see if it basically works. And then their brain goes like, yeah, that was a good combo. Good combo. Okay, we'll, we'll store that one away. <laughs> well, they try an another one. Oh, that's a bad combo breaker. Combo breaker. I, yeah. I called my six-year-old like a tiny little dictator. And his response, and then he sort of looked at me funny. I'm like, do you even know what a dictator is? He was like, mama, I'm not a dictator. Yeah. And, and I was like, do you know what that is? And he said, was, I know what a tater is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the kids are just so utterly charming. But yeah, like the eight year old was pedantically explaining something. And I just yelled, I'm like, I'm a game developer. I work in games. Stop. Yell like stop doing this and Adam's like texting a friend. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> like, even games. He was 
talking about poetry for some I think they were, had been reading oh, some one, poems yeah. okay. in school right, like right. it was like so a shell silver scene or something yeah something uh, and they had been they had been doing or they were trying to they were doing a, a poem writing project in school I assume and um, so they're talking about like what are some things that poems have and letting the second graders kind of pitch in their own ideas or whatever and so we weren't talking about poems at all which like that never affects what he wants to talk about anyway um, so we're like sitting at the dinner table and he's like uh uh, he's like, uh, do you want do you want to hear a poem? There's a poem I just wrote, and it said something about birds. And he's like, and I don't know, it's mostly like birds and commas. And he paused, and he was like, I don't know, poems are mostly commas, really, really. <laughs> and then just went on talking about something else, and was like, I was about to say like a bird poem. That seems pretty on brand for yeah, Adam Saltzman. Super yeah. on brand. But it was like one of those things that was hard to engage with. It was like you were just really dismissive of like an entire art form that's been really meaningful to humanity for thousands of years. But you're kind of right. There's like a lot of commas in poems. <laughs> and there's not a lot of periods generally compared to other, you know, written forms. So you're not wrong, wrong. Mm-hmm. But this is a kind of weird negging that you're doing right yeah. now. <laughs> so so young, pedantic, poorly informed. Sounds it, perfect for a podcaster. Yeah, pretty much. Which, Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome, world. Yeah. A podcast exists with our idiot goblin children. Important show for trainers? Right? Uh, An in, informational, informational yes. show. Which showed up. So I was traveling at PAX East this year, and Adam like texts me. He's like, I got bored with the boys, and we've created a podcast. I was like, really? He's like, like you do. Like you do when mom travels for PAX. Uh, and I just started getting episodes, which is... The podcast is in order of Pokedex. Yep. So every, like, you know, number one is, I don't remember. Thank you. National Uh, National National Pokedex Pokedex. ordering. Which apparently they've abandoned for Sword and Shield. Well, don't tell my children this. It will blow their minds. But yeah, so we have, I don't know, 20-something episodes now. And they're all like two and a half to three minutes. 24 episodes now. Yeah, we haven't. We've only done a couple in the last Almost couple weeks. Almost one hour of content. Yeah. Yeah, they're like two, three minutes Very long. Very short episodes. Perfect. So for, for... My boys are obsessed with Pokemon, but that doesn't actually mean they know anything about them. Mm-hmm. So half of the stuff they yell is uh, wrong. Or they just yeah. forget halfway through a sentence what they were saying. It's not necessarily the most rigorously no. researched podcast. There's no um, errata... Uh, you know, updates of, uh, we, we regret to inform you that in the previous episode, there was a, a, a mistake. Um, we said yeah. The shiny version of Pikachu was this color. It's actually this other color. Yeah, no, we just, we just go with it. Um, it's all kind of fictional anyway. I feel like yeah, there's like it's like a really weird, pretty like, low stakes. Philosophically, it's really weird. I've been to trying be to coach them to like wrong about things that aren't real anyway. Like that's yeah. a really weird. I've been trying to coach them to, to just like make up more stuff because mm-hmm. like what they come up with like when they're playing is so funny that like I was like you know you guys can talk about all of this other stuff with the Pokemon and they're like what I'm like you can literally say anything you want, kiddos. I think they they at some point had like internalized what they're mostly supposed to do is recite statistics or read word for word the descriptions of moves from cards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that that somehow constitutes like a, and yeah. it's like no, just like talk about what you like about them or what does it look like. Yeah. How about a color? You guys, any, you can anything. I mean, because it actually like weirdly is a good academic uh, practice for children to describe something they see, especially mm-hmm. yeah. for like in the six year old in their own words. Like, why do you like it? 
what colors, like what about it descriptively, like come up with words to tell, like tell yeah. somebody else about it. Emotionally, you can like the idea that you could sit and think about like, why do you like anything? Yeah. Like that's Im- some Im- value in that. Important skill. Reflection. But, yeah. Eight-year-old, his brain is just a series of statistics, and the six-year-old just loses track of all of his thoughts on the regs. So it's like the combination is just like, I mean, good luck. It's great, actually. I love the episode. I think it's a pretty funny show. It's like it's a very, it's like they're totally unscripted. They're very short. They're pure improv. And And we cackle through half of them. (laughs) They're very naturally funny kids i think most kids are pretty naturally funny uh because their willingness to like in a very modern way like their willingness to put words together that just shouldn't go together but that kind of get the job done anyway that kind of thing like they're fun to listen to kingsley's really good joke the other day was he was going up the stairs to go brush his teeth and uh like it's a pretty normal thing. Like um, we used to call it like raging against the dying of the light, but like when it starts to get close to bedtime, yeah. the kids are like, all right, I'm pulling out all the stops. Like what's all yeah. the worst stuff I can start Whatever doing. I can do to not get in that yeah. bed. And they've been saving some stuff up all day. So he's going up the stairs and he goes, dad, junks are called wieners. And then <laughs> he turns and looks back at me over his shoulder with this like funny look on his face. And he goes in Spanish. <laughs> just like How I do you was respond to this? I blown mean, away like a like a cartoon when a cartoon bomb goes off in your face yeah. and you've got ash and your hair is blown back and it was like because I can't laugh at that as soon as I laugh at that I have like clearly established that an easy win and this is true is to say something <laughs> about genitals and then add in Spanish at the end. Um, with a goofy look on your face. Like that's a super solid joke format <laughs> and he can't know that yet. Like it's too much power and he's <laughs> not ready for it. Uh, and so he just had to be like, well, it's toothbrush in time. All right. And just kind of like hold it in for like 10, 15 minutes um, and so then enjoy it thoroughly. Also in context, like this particular child at the beginning of second grade, which he just finished, he was seven. I got a phone call while sending wire transfers. And I was like, I can't take this right now. Call somebody else. I was like, call his dad. I don't have time for this. Um, in the lunchroom in September of last year, decided to yell fuck like 20 or 30 times at ever increasing volume which is not really exactly in his character. Like he's not a bad kid. So I was like, huh, that's an odd one. So after school, it's like, I'm not, not something I'm going to yell at my kid really about. Cause now I have to make stupid. You have to use kind words in the lunchroom posters with them all weekend. Yeah. Thanks for punishing me. But I was like, yeah, there's, hey, a, man, level of, do there's this? a level of infraction that a child can do at a school that like that punishes the parent. Yeah. Oh man, I was like, I love his school so much and I love the administration, but I was just like, you just punished my ass. For him, and I was like, "Man, why'd you do that?" Like, you knew that's a that's a grown up word, and not allowed to say that. And he's like, "Well, mom, just actually said, mama, I just wanted to know what it felt like." I was like, "Well, how the hell did that science work out for you, my man? How did it feel?" He's like, "Well, it didn't work out the way I thought." <laughs> he's like, "Okay, could you not do that anymore? Thanks. Good science." good science. Yeah, you tested yeah, your theory. Yeah. You have results, sure. but please don't do that again. You just ruined my weekend. 
He's he's creative and not entirely ethical, but at least has <laughs> oh, the okay. like the thing in like Jurassic Park where they're where the game wardens like I don't trust these dinosaurs. They never attack the same part of the fence twice. Like he's got that. Yeah, he will never do the same crime two times in a row. Uh, it's always going to be something new that you couldn't anticipate. <sighs> He's a good one to live with. So yeah, what's it like working with kids as a long explanation? Uh, anyone want him? He's free. You want to know if your strategies work? I will give you my eight-year-old for a week. You say that, but also you guys are taking a red hot red eye back home. Yeah. Because you miss them terribly. Uh, and also, or maybe you just oh, want to leave no. E3. Um, that, a little bit of both. both okay. yeah, yeah, no, there's a thing where it's like, uh, because we live in Michigan now and all the stuff that we travel for is like on the West Coast. Uh, we would lose a whole day of development and parenting like and not get anything done if I flew out Thursday morning like because the time zone change is such a nightmare. Yeah. yeah as soon as the, you have three time zones and one layover. Yeah. Every, every flight is like seven has to ten a hours, four to five yeah. hour penalty on whatever the actual flight time is. Yeah. It's like I can leave uh, at 8 a.m. and get home at midnight. Yeah. And it's only been seven hours but I've like ruined a whole day. Yeah. And it's like why don't I waste that time overnight? I'll be tired. Mm. Who cares? I'll just go to bed early on Thursday, but at least I'll be home. We'll have a day instead of like losing all of that work time. Yeah. Which is a very different when we started traveling for work, you know, like 10 or 12 years ago, uh, it was very much like, Oh, we get to go someplace weird and cool. Let's add a couple days on the yeah. front, a couple days on the back. We'll get yeah. to hang out with friends. We'll go exploring. We'll see the sites. Um, and increasingly it's felt like, um, one, like partway into the like extra day of sightseeing on the end of a, of a work trip. I'm just like, I'm exhausted and I don't want to be I here. I just like, here. I just yeah. worked four or five days in a row out of a hotel in a city that I don't live in and I'm exhausted. I'm not ready for sightseeing. Like yeah. sightseeing is an activity. That's I can't handle that right now. I, I was funny, um, like even prepping for E3 this year, like uh, everyone was like, you know, all these people who go to E3 all the time and they're poo-pooing E3. And it's like, no, it's not that it's not that it's like privilege necessarily that you're just like, Oh my God, I have to go to E3 or my God, I have to go to PAX. Like it can I, look and feel bad. If like, there's a bunch of people who would love to get to experience, to experience all the like, crazy stuff I that's happening here. And I when they see veterans E3. going like, it's just, it's just so boring. I've done it so many times. Yeah. And it's like, like as an industry professional, like I work in the industry, I don't go to E3 to have fun. I don't go to PAX to like see anything other than my booth. Yeah, like, our, our version of these events is really like different I'm, than I think what people yeah. often yes. imagine it might right. be. I mean, yeah. they look at the press because I mean, press is normally like they're, yeah. they're you know. Yeah, press is popping like in and out of booths. They're playing things. But even yeah. press. You go to these, the big glitzy press conference. Yeah. Keanu Reeves is there. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's all very magical. John Bernthal brought his dog. So, yeah. We're mostly like in meetings that in one way or another. Determine the future of our studio and like the financial the of our family. solvency yes. and uh, yes. like and like really stressful decisions about how I'm going to launch things and where I'm going to launch it and when I'm going to launch it and what things do I need to make sure that I hit that crosses all the platforms like, that I'm launching on. What and, are the subtleties of you know how you present your work and your where your studio is at to partners in terms of not just managing your existing relationship, yeah. but how you want to be able to manage this relationship in the right. future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, 
Um, like there's yeah, so much, there's so much prep just going into that before E3 and not just like for the announcements and all that, but just like, you know, for weeks I've been thinking about like what with each one of my meetings, what are the pieces that overlap, which I talked actually about in a talk like two weeks ago, like when you are your communication with platforms is like, you're always focusing on the intersection points where you're on the same page, mm-hmm. like, and you have the same sort of goals. Um, and that like for like a certain project would be different across every platform even because each platform sort of has different goals and end goals with like where your project overlaps. Yeah. So it's a very like marketing, it's a very like marketing focusing on that to make sure that, yeah, you're not missing the opportunity that you have when you're talking to people who are super passionate about your project, like, and you only get to see them two or three times a year. So yeah, yeah, yeah. going to yeah. any of these events is usually like, weeks of prep and then you're there and you're keeping crazy hours. Like I complain about like, yeah, at GDC I have to go to like this party and then this party and then this party. And they're like, Oh yeah. Going to all these parties. I'm like, no, I'd rather be in my hotel room or having a nice quiet dinner with friends Yeah, doing yeah. literally anything else. But I need to go talk to this person. Then I have to go talk to this person. Then maybe I can end up at a place where I'll run into some friends because my besties live all over the world and I only see them at this one event. Otherwise, yeah. we're on like a Discord channel chatting. Yeah, like um, emotionally, a really good industry party to be at is like five people, two bottles of wine and Netflix mm-hmm. kind of is like, <laughs> that is a really good party if you're our yeah, age and have our table like... table in the back of a dive yeah, bar. If, just like catching up because you haven't spent time with these like lovely humans you've known since your 20s because you live in like seven different states or eight different countries. Yeah, because a lot of the time like a, there are a lot of people for whom like going to a party isn't really going to a party. It's going to a meeting yes. or a yeah. series of meetings that, that happen ha- to have food and alcohol yeah. and loud music and <laughs> are orchestrated in a rotating way in a party like environment. Yes, a party um, configuration. And it's cool. Yeah, it's and it's not at all to like denigrate the like generosity of platforms provi- for yeah. providing comfortable places to do yeah. these things. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not always it's, emotionally it's, the experience that people it's not, imagine it might yeah, be. It's not a Friday night house party. Right. Um, like you're, there are goals often. And when you finally get to get to a party where there are no goals, you're just like, wow, am I really here right now? How am I at an industry event and like I'm yeah. just hanging out? But also worried about like, you know, really partying because you have yeah. like your presentation. You have, you have a breakfast the, yeah. at 8 a.m. <laughs> and yeah. you're trying to represent somebody else's work there and right. then you have to do, go mm-hmm. to another thing and then you're going to do this yeah, other still, thing. Your schedule and, doesn't end. Yeah. So and you don't want to drop the ball, especially if you're representing other people's work. If you didn't get enough sleep and you can't really hack it at your thing that's at 10 p.m. the next night, which is 1 a.m. in the time zone where you're from, yeah. then uh, yeah, it's just like it's a, a, a it's a risk that you could choose to take, but I think we've grown to feel weird about taking. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So so you mentioned representing other people's work, and I think it was like. It was a giant bomb couch like two years ago that you used the phrase accidental publisher to refer oh, to totally. Finji. Yeah, I think yeah. That's fair, it, so. it 100% was like back with our first sort of foray into publishing, which was Aquaria for iOS. Like it was absolutely accidental publishing. Like the team didn't want to manage that relationship and weren't set up as iOS devs. And uh, it was like really easy for us because we had Cannibalt or whatever at that point. We're just like, yeah, man, we'll just put it up on our store and we'll just pay you it's fine. I have to pay people anyways. 
Right. Um, so in, and in that relationship, it was less, it was not at all what we're doing now. This was more yeah, like in, a like storefront clearinghouse or something. Like, yeah, I will a hundred percent put this up and I will send you your revenue. Like, yeah, very light distribution model. Yeah. Like we weren't doing marketing or funding or anything, just no. like a little, a little bit of production, a little bit of accounting, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting, extending the reach of the game a little bit. Yeah. It's really about it. But yeah, like with Night in the Woods, because like the relationship there is Alec worked on Aquaria with Derek and Alec is part of Night in the Woods. So when like Night in the Woods um, was approached by Sony specific, specifically, they were like, oh God, who the hell is going to sign these Sony contracts? And I don't want to do this. Like, cause they're in two different countries. It, like, and it, it put some other things in the spotlight that they hadn't been thinking about. They were yeah. like, oh, let's do, let's, we're having a fun internet collaboration. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this Kickstarter is doing really good. We don't even have a company. Yes. Or, yeah. uh, and like, you yeah. Know, how are we actually like, you often don't think through how you're going to distribute something when you start something. And they had to approach that pretty early. Like, Oh, it's not just me putting it out on steam because Alec could do that. And then accountants could pay. He's like, I also have to manage a Sony relationship, which has a whole bunch of other things, but now who is going to manage it forever? Well, that's an odd question. Cause we barely, we don't even have a game yet. Like how, why There's am I making sort of these like decisions? This notion of like sort of, taking care of the game and sort of post-launch opportunities and this kind of like, yeah, um, yeah this weird a, caretaking yeah. role. Alec was a good enough friend and had been for a long time that, and we'd already done Aquaria and he's like, so I know you guys are working on these other big game projects. We have a big game project. Do you want to just take this? And I was like, I have to develop these relationships anyways because I didn't have a relationship with Sony. I mean, I had friends like Nick Sutner, who is the dev relations was a friend, mm-hmm. but not like he wasn't my dev relations friend. Like he was, he was a, he was a friend, he was who, just happened a friend to work there. who happened to work there. Um, it was like, that's a cool guy with good taste that we know yeah, that we and have hung out with GDC on occasion. Um, so I was like, well, I have to do this because I was sort of taking over the role that I'm in now um, at Finji. Cause before I was kind of like silent, biz finances and we just like, I just did it. I didn't even pay myself. As a matter of fact, I didn't pay myself until like last year, a whole nother conversation about, yeah, weird couple dumb running companies. Um, but yeah, that sort of like, Oh, well, this is my role. Like I would manage Sony and Oh, it would make sense that I would also manage Xbox and Oh, it makes sense that I would also manage steam and iOS. And these are all things that Adam was doing and gradually like have been passing those off. Like iOS is sort of like the last one that got passed off um, because we hadn't had an active project since I took over until Apple Arcade. Right. Um, And that's Overland's involvement with Apple Arcade. So like we hadn't, uh, that was like sort of the biz dev relationship that was like us kind of like the last one is like sort of shepherded into my domain, Mm -hmm. which has been really cool because it, it stresses Adam out to worry about those things. Um, and we sort of joke that like if Adam had to be responsible for it forever, he would just burn it all down. But like, I'm really good at like sort of parsing the business things that are said that seem maybe wild or predatory. And you're just like, and like understanding that that's often not nefarious, but more just a large company goal. Like when you're kind of, 
messing with the Titanic, not the Titanic, but messing with the giant ship because the Titanic sinks. But messing with a giant ship, they're just really hard to steer and like being like a tiny little boat next to it and sort of like weaving around it to make sure you don't get like dragged under or something. Like I'm good at steering the little boat. We sometimes think of it, the other metaphor we sometimes use is thinking of like, think of like a really big, beautiful, emotionally intelligent, like marvelous animal, like uh, elephant elephant or like a humpback whale or something like that. Like what a cool, astonishing, like powerful creature. But like both of those creatures could kill you on accident if you weren't careful, like that is the thing that could happen and not because they're malicious, not because they're out to get you, not because it's an inherently dangerous thing necessarily, but they're very big and you're very small Mm -hmm. fundamentally. Like we we're, I think we think of ourselves more as like a medium sized studio now because we have probably 10, 20 collaborators at any given time. But um, compared to say uh, Microsoft, or Sony Worldwide Studios, yeah. or whatever any of these organizations would be, like we're pretty microscopic. Yeah, you, when you're and talking so, like, about media conglomerates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just not there. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, uh, trying to figure out how to coexist in a way where you are. Um, Don't accidentally hurt yourself. Yeah. Because they're so big. You don't put yourself in harm's way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause they don't, they can't keep track of it. Like imagine being like an elephant and you're surrounded by like, um, teeny tiny people and you're trying as hard as you can to not step on any of them, but they keep running right in front of you. Kind of like, yeah, it's not a great, um, uh, they can't be responsible for that all the time. Sure. Uh, and, or we, we at least assume that it's impossible for them to be responsible for that all the time. So we manage, I manage it. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard thing. Oh, go ahead. My, my instinct, especially when we started doing this was like the elephant's coming right toward me. I'm going to make a dramatic like (laughs) stand. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) how dare you? Uh, And it does like, it doesn't end well. It doesn't work well. And um, I just quietly move us out of the way. Yeah. Uh, Quietly, silently, just shift us to the side. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's cleared a really nice, safe path for us, and we (laughs) can like coexist in harmony, and we can do cool things, and we can show other people how to do this. And oh, that's that's much better than just getting crushed. One of the best Uh, compliments I ever received from a friend um, was something had gone wrong with a thing uh, last year. Publicly, had gone wrong. And I had to, on the fly, very rapidly fix it. Um, and it involved uh, some of the largest like press organizations posting the wrong thing. And it was a thing that I thought had been fixed. And uh, I had to sort of like take uh, Felix in particular is the person who gave me this compliment. And like, we need to fix this. And we're going to do it quietly and silently and just make sure all the information gets updated as fast and quickly as possible. Um, because there's so many points where something went wrong here. There's not even blame to assign, but it is our job to just make it evaporate into the atmosphere. Right. Um, there's like a, there's almost like a Zen and, minimalist thing yeah, to it in a way where it's and, like, okay, we'd have to do the minimal amount of disturbances yeah. to the natural ecosystem, but still set this to rights. Yep. And like, how yeah, do you do that? No statement needs to be made. Nothing no. needs to actually happen except we need to make it disappear. Um, because it was a mistake. Like it shouldn't have been out 
and there were several points where it had been fixed and just didn't end up getting fixed. Mm-hmm. And I like, wanted to be like afterwards, cause... Felix was like, this would have crippled everyone else. Like this was like, it was like ninja fixing and it was done within 24 hours and it was just fine. I was thinking of it like at the end of Kung Fu Hustle where like he's attained true, Stephen Chow's <laughs> attained like true enlightenment mm-hmm. and he has this new like hyper minimalist Kung Fu where like, a giant squad of guys come up to attack him and he does these like little tiny like micro movements to his body and all their punches just barely miss him. And then he like moves one shoulder slightly and it knocks a guy off of a staircase. Like that's like the dream for this stuff, I think, is not like, oh, something weird happened. Oh, we've got to freak we've out do now. A big press release yeah. and yeah. pull it out of proportion and turn it into a, a, yeah. a controversy and we'll use that as a press cycle and do all or of that stuff. Or accidentally. You yeah. think that you just did something, but really you just, you made a really dumb, like yeah. it wasn't you, a thing. You did something that made a lot of sense for the next 10 minutes that doesn't make any sense yeah. for the next 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months, which is really easy to do, sure. so especially like, when you're in a panic. Yeah. Like, oh, we've got to fix this fast. And it's like, uh, my general thing is fix it fast is like a mistake happened. It's fine. What's the most proactive way of fixing it? And it's to actually fix the problem. And if we need to make a statement later about something, that's different. Be like, yeah, no, it, a mistake happened. It's fine. Right. We fixed it. Yeah. And like, what an easy, like. When being comfortable, like no matter what happened, being comfortable with the fact that um, in the long term, it might be better for your organization to step up and go like, um, you know what? It was our fault. Yeah. How about that? It's just our fault. It's our fault. Yeah, we, I'll take it. We messed up. Yeah. Uh, I'll take it guess what? It doesn't forever. matter, it doesn't actually. Matter. Like, Who cares? Yeah. A mistake was made. Fine, whatever. Does the internet need someone's fault to have happened? Great, yeah, it's ours. I'll take it. Yeah, it's mine. Bring <laughs> it over. Well, that's interesting because you know you talk about like making the big show or like you know guy standing in front of the tank like trying to stop it and like that seems it seems like a big part of like the indie identity in a lot of ways. Um, it makes me super anxious. I mean, we joke often like we're never gonna be. We made the joke for a long time. We're never gonna be stars of like a you know indie documentary or something. It's because sure. we're boring. <laughs> like you know we're pushing 40 where we've got two kids we've got like a quiet little house in Michigan. Um, we're just making stuff. We want to just make beautiful things and help them exist. And then, you know, we'll do dumb things like we'll hang out in our discord with y'all. We'll, uh, do a nasty bake off and hope nobody gets salmonella at PAX. Like we'll do all of these like goofy things because they're in our personality to do, but like, we're just kind of boring parents. Like, And part of it is actually kind of trying it the other way a lot and it never producing the results that we wanted. So like I am not, um, I don't want anybody to think that like um, all of this stuff was us going like, uh, Oh yeah, no, we've, you you know what, you know what is the, uh, the honest mature thing to do is these clever moves here and we'll just do those all the time. This is like for years, like making big stinks out of stuff and like messing up relationships that we could have handled better and like Mm -hmm. using social media in genuinely stupid ways and it not moving the needle and not changing a lot of these things. I think your notion is like, like, well that like, it wasn't like we were setting out to necessarily try one thing, but just like understanding, like this is making me anxious and it's dumb and we can or, do, do this in a way that's more honest about who we are. I often felt like we're doing, yeah, we were doing things that we felt like were emotionally honest at the time. 
Um, but they weren't getting the outcomes that we wanted. Like an outcome that we want is for the composition of the game industry to be different than it is. That's an outcome that we want to see happen. And like um, shitposting 24-7 wasn't <laughs> causing that to happen. <laughs> just, that was the thing that I tried. Mm-hmm. If people can go to my Twitter account, there's no, there's almost no tweets on it, but it'll say you've posted 124,000 tweets. Um, that's like a pretty good volume of shit posts I, on average, I think. And it um, didn't do anything. Um, and so uh, I think for the last few years, uh, three or four years now, uh, you know, redirecting that energy to um, trying to produce outcomes that we want. Yeah. Like we can't, uh, there's this, I think there's this thing of like, you know, I feel like I can't do anything. So I'm going to stand up here and just like sandwich board scream at people um, because I'm really mad at, I'm mad about the way in which the game industry doesn't reflect the kind of composition that I would like to see in it, that it doesn't reflect the demographics of the countries where the game industries are from, that kind of thing. Like it is upsetting. And I think it's okay to be mad about that stuff, but spending all your energy if you're spending all of your energy being mad about it online, um, I don't think it's moving the needle very much. And if that energy instead is like, well, let's be a little more maybe calculating and mercenary about setting up systems where we can at least make our corner of the industry look like how we think maybe yeah. it could look. Is that does that lead to things like, you know, you you being like a big part of like the itch first access refinery stuff? Um, that was definitely more like a mercenary. We had a need and when we approached all the storefronts at the time, it wasn't an, it wasn't a, understood exactly why that need was there. Yeah. Um, like, which was fine. We do love itch.io and everything yeah. that itch.io stands for, but um, running Overland First Access on itch.io was uh, almost purely a tools question. Yes. Okay, it itch.io has the best tools for running betas right now. Okay, um, and so that's where we were ran mm-hmm. or alphas or whatever uh, you want to call them. That's where we ran it. The uh, way okay. that we have built the the studio and the people that we work with, the way that we onboard people, is a hundred percent like our version of this. Like how do we make sure that we get diverse candidates when we post a job? How do we ensure that they are comfortable? How do we focus on soft skills rather than hard skills? Like, is this something we can train for? Or do we need someone to already have a ton of experience and to make sure that our language that we use uh, reflects that like any job posting and our and, hiring process. And, and to, we joke, we, it's not even a joke, but to when you post something about the studio, like the fact that, it has a woman's photo <laughs> like on the web page like is an like as a woman who applies for jobs knowing that there is someone who represents me like there on the page is like uh comforting like yeah, we've been, oh i'm i'm not going to be just thrown because i have a girl name on my resume talking to a lot of people and um uh, uh, other studios who have expressed really similar interests uh, uh to ours in terms of like how do you staff up and um what are uh how do you find you know new voices that the game industry normally doesn't um you know, employ and work with them to make new games and stuff like that. Like that's a, a interesting thing to try to do. And the, we have found it, I have found it relatively easy to find these people and everyone that we talk to 
express, they basically talk about it like, well, I mean, we tried everything we could think of and it's basically impossible. And I feel like, uh, I, I found it hard to not do it. Uh, and the, yeah, after we made our initial changes, yeah, which we had like some really cool friends yeah, point really out some problems. Amazing years mentorship ago. from yeah. Jenny and Henry Faber from Bento yeah. Miso in Toronto and some other folks. Um, but, but since then we've gotten like an incredible, uh, outcome of just crazy diverse candidates. And yeah. then we, we also do like blind, like we wipe identifying characteristics. There's a bunch of stuff, like, but like at the, just to, yeah. to make other people who are reviewing the baseline thing, like the, the difference that we see is like, I work really hard on how we do our hiring stuff. Um, but, uh, other studios do too. And when I go through our qualified candidates, when I just throw out candidates who are not even close to in the yeah. running for the position, our applicants are 50, 50 men and women. You know, if anybody else is looking to like what, you know, what does it take to build and maintain a diverse studio? I think this is one of the basic building blocks. Um, this is one of the, and for all these different reasons for, for, you know, inspiring confidence and in applicants that they're going to be going into um, like a safe studio that mm -hmm. is going to be a good place for them to work. Um, all, all those things. And th then there's a, there's a whole other separate problem of having a good environment for diverse group of people to work in, in an ongoing way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time. A lot of people have like actually pretty progressive hiring practices and then um, pretty gnarly kind of internal management practices. Yeah. And so it's almost worse. You're like getting people in with high expectations and then um, kind of grinding them up. Yeah. Then they leave. And burn yeah. Them. yeah. Yeah. We spent a lot of time, especially onboarding. We were just talking about this this last week. Um, Cause we're kind of busy right now and we've been like, onboarding actually our QA um, person and we missed the time where we usually focus on our communication style, which we've done talks on. And we were just like, Oh wait, we didn't cover that. Did we? And it was just cause we were so darn busy like around GDC and we're like, we should step back. Like, because everybody else in the studio completely knows all of this stuff because we've practiced it so much. And we're like, did we practice that? And it was like a failure for us. We're like, we didn't practice it. Oh, what's remembering like, Oh, that's right. We should probably like, well, part like, of it is realizing this. Like, we have a, an uncommon sort of management style or creative yeah. culture within the company. Um, not a lot of other studios do mm -hmm. it. And it's something that can be super uncomfortable for people who aren't used to it. And it's easy for us to forget that because we've been kind of trying it out and collaborating this way for a long time. So we live in a bubble where it's completely normal for people to be comfortable with proposing incomplete, maybe bad ideas. That's, a, some, that's something that I do constantly. That's something that everyone on our team, I think, has achieved a above average level of comfort. It took years. Yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> but everybody currently is pretty comfortable coming to the table and going like, uh, I've been working at this thing and I can't sort it out. I think it's like 80%. And I, I would love to talk to people about how to get it the rest of the way there. Yeah, we, um, we onboarded like four people kind of since March. Um full-time and part-time and we realized that we hadn't uh done this conversation about yeah. how well, we and communicate and then i think it's something that takes a lot of reassuring for a lot of people because i think it's relatively normal to be in an environment where um if you propose something that has problems in it that mm -hmm. 
um, that reflects poorly on you. Right. Whereas um, that's something that we encourage. It, we mm-hmm. like is if somebody has something that's mostly good and they already know what the problems are, like please bring them up and let the other smart people that we've found like help fill in those last two blanks. And then the whole project is much, much better for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is, it, it's, we've been re-realizing that for um, part of this thing of like trying to do a good job of maintaining a diverse studio is remembering that a yeah. lot of this stuff does not come naturally to anybody and that it probably didn't come naturally to us. No, well, cause we started practicing it so long ago Yeah, that, yeah, it feels natural now. Um, but it's like, a, uh, it, it feels like, um, uh, it's almost like a thing where we've been running, if we've been running half marathons and then a friend is like, Oh, I've been thinking about running and we're like, yeah. come on, we're doing a 12 mile training run. And like they make it a mile in and are barfing everywhere. And it's like, right, right, right. We've been doing this for yeah. years. We have the stamina. You don't, yeah. that's not a problem. You just, yeah. you just haven't and, trained. And it's not that hard to pick up, but it is unfamiliar. This yeah. is a, these are well, unfamiliar situations. It's really important for us too, like in all the sort of the things that we one, we're getting better at like identifying like where we screwed up, but it's important for us. Like we acknowledge, like we totally effed up. Like we failed this person, this scenario at this moment. Let's backtrack a little bit and make sure that everyone's on the same page again, because like it's important for us. Like we're not infallible and we fuck up a lot and we get really busy and we are unavailable or whatever. Um, and we want to follow our own rules. Yeah, we exactly. want to lead by example whenever we can, like find something that where we were managing staff poorly, point out what we think yeah, the problems might be, <laughs> um, but point out what we think a lot of what we've been doing maybe works well and then find a way as a group to like um, get it, the rest of the way there yeah. and like move forward with something that's, that's fixed and that works good and that all the pieces fit together. Yeah. And that's a really design cool thing. And I think like a production thing, watching our staff, uh, Caitlin earlier this year, our lead engineer was like, Hey, you guys don't do any kind of review. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'd never do that tied to pay. That's awful. And it, it makes everybody anxious, makes me anxious. And she was like, yeah, no, no, no. But I would really love just like a one-on-one with you guys just to like talk about like, how am I doing and where am I going? I was like, Oh yeah, no, I could see how that would be valuable. Yeah, yeah, like, just that people like to pe- know. Like, yeah. ma- people don't want to be dragged into like a concrete room where there's like a metal table. Yeah, and like I had such a, a naked yeah, like manila folder yeah. of files of, like, and like this trash let's talk about your ten work. months ago. You did this one thing, and I'm like, like I got so angry with that, which is why I was like, I'm not doing that shit. Um, but then Caitlin pointing out, like, hey, I really want to just talk about like how am I doing in a constructive way. And I was well, like, yeah, no, like we're a, failing. Like I want to get better. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I'm not getting any feedback about the work that I'm doing, I have nothing to go on in terms of figuring out how to improve. Um, so like we need to do something for that. And these like, probably if like people who run real companies, it's like, yeah, you're supposed yeah, to you give idiots. feedback to your staff. Good dummies. job. You morons. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, but we figuring were, out how that fits. Like yeah. what is the kind of what's feedback? What's the version what's, of that for us? What does right. a review mean? Like what's the purpose of it? Like these are corporate structures that have existed for a long time and ostensibly serve many purposes. But like a lot of those purposes are not things. If you run a, a co-op or a co-op style mm-hmm. studio, a lot of these structures 
in their normal manifestation are not relevant for right. the work that you do because there's no manager employee relationship or yeah. anything like that yeah I mean, and there's con- the, the, like we do have a management employee relationship but it's we're so flat structure wise like yes i control the money than normal yeah like like me and adam control the money i control the money but you're the money people basically <laughs> but like uh the idea that i have any idea what the hell Caitlin's doing every day as a lead engineer. Like I basically get it, but like she's obviously the expert in her field. Like I can't do what Heather Penn does. My QA documentation skills are trash. Like I rely on Heather Winters to like do this and audio is like, I don't know what the hell Jocelyn's talking about half the time, which is Mm -hmm. legit and valid because that's why we hired experts to do this. And like why we have Adam sort of like pulling it all together. Like my job is kind of, often out like I know what all the pieces do but I don't know the technical piece of it so like that's why we have this like flat sort of level of experts um but I had missed the fact that oh I control the bank account so it might make people anxious if they don't have a conversation with the bank account yeah uh and I was like I feel so inferior to these brilliant humans that I work with every day that I didn't realize that they actually felt the same on the reverse, that they thought I was brilliant and they would have, my opinion would matter at all. Um, I think some of this stuff is indicative of this whole, like this process of deciding to um, not, there's something, I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify this, but there's this notion as we were talking about earlier, like as, especially as a sort of independent game designer, independent artists or a weird collective or whatever that, um, you have, you can't go with the flow. You have to go against the flow. And to some degree, there's something about that that feels weird to me. Like if you were talking about religion and you would say like, you know, um, there's a form of being like non-religious that's like being like anti-religious and it has, almost all the aspects of being religious it has the same kind of like uh, evangelical kind of behaviors mm-hmm. um, kind of built into it. And I, I think a thing that I feel like we, we've been getting more and more conscious of is that sort of blind opposition to things is um, not super different from doing the thing. And there's this slower, more boring, <laughs> less sexy, thing which is like and not not to uh, blow this up as like uh you know oh well we're we're rational grown-ups who think through everything <laughs> so and, sophisticated and barely grown up the children in the industry simply don't understand how to do things i don't like it's not exactly no. that but like thinking critically about things so that you're not throwing babies out with bathwater 24 7 and yeah. making things harder for yourself because things are hard enough you don't have to make new problems for yourself all the time. Mm. Like it should be fine to say like, Ooh, I don't like employer reviews. There's a power dynamic there that freaks me out. Um, but if you kick it all away, then you're not giving your collaborators feedback about how to grow because like they, they just on their own, they want to improve. They want to, Uh, get better at what they do for a ton of different reasons that are not connected to getting raises or anything. Um, and so yeah, sort of like, it was, they trust our feedback and want to learn. Yeah. And that was like, Oh, 
that's also really humbling. And now I am more nervous about doing this, but for a wildly different reason. Cause like now that I understand what the goal is for like my collaborator, now I was like, I have to take this real seriously. So I need to come up with like an actual process so I don't fail them and the needs that they have. Cause mm. like, I don't know. It's been weird. Like coming from like, you know, when Overland started is this like collaboration. We didn't have employees. It's just me and Adam to like onboarding everyone with like actual real HR, which just happened like this month and like, Oh, we're going to formalize process, but we still need the process to be as flexible as sort of like our, like the way we want to live with our company. And um, it's been weird and kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll probably wrap up pretty soon, but I, I did want to ask about, um, so the first thing is, you know, you talk about your collaborators, you talk about all the, the projects that you help, you know, with publishing and everything and guidance. And, um, do you think that's always going to be the goal? Like, is there always going to be like a, a minimum number of projects that you always want to help shepherd? Or if it's like, oh, okay, now we're just working on, you know, the next, Finji develop game that's fine and we just haven't found the right other collaborators yet I think we're always going to have extra projects like our partner projects I think we're always going to have probably I mean right now I've got two that aren't even announced because they're so early in development Um, so like I think there's always going to be there because like the way game development works like Finji game like after we launch Overland we're looking at two to four years Probably. I mean, that's just realistically like two years because you're blazing through and you actually are like maybe not completely yeah, changing the we, genre you're in or, or four we found if you have a lot of R&D. Surpri- luckily, yeah. surprisingly yeah. small and elegant yeah. that yeah. we felt like, like could work Because prototyping still. takes so long. I mean, that's like, you know, six to nine months, sometimes up to 18 months of like, just like prototyping. What the hell are we going to make next? So like, what are we going to do between like in the prototyping phase, I'm not utilizing everybody on the team. So what what is my QA going to do when we're prototyping? What is Harris, my community manager, going to do if I'm not shipping one of my internal games? Like uh, sort of reutilizing the staff that we have on these other projects as sort of like pinch hitters yeah. to ship other people's games is like if really you, important yeah. to us. But also on a biz standpoint... I always need to have my periscope up. Like I see it often with indie teams, especially um, the, the, we finish a thing, we do really great and we put our heads in the sand and then we like pop up two or three or four years later and like, okay, I'm ready to ship my next thing. But the whole industry now lives on another planet. Right. Yeah. And you're not there anymore. And yeah, I think even if even if you don't self-publish, but especially if you self-publish mm-hmm. uh, and your games take longer than six months mm-hmm. to make, uh, there is this one of the benefits of publishing for us for sure is that it kind of keeps the machine hot. Mm. Like the self-publishing yeah. end I'm yeah. always is, running. shouldn't be the complexity and difficulty yeah. of it. We feel weird underestimating it now. And uh, if there's another game that could use that uh, and kind of keep that machine up and running until our next thing is ready. Great. Yeah. Yep. That, that would be phenomenal because turning it on and off is complicated. Complicated. Right. It's terrifying. Like 
like I, at all of these, I mean, we talked about it earlier, like what does an actual festival look like or convention look like for sort of the dev side of things? It's like I go to all of these because that's my periscope up. I meet with all of my dev relations, even if I'm not launching a game for another 18 months. Like I've been talking about Overland with kind of everybody for two and a half years. <coughs> so uh, like even after I launch Overland, I've got Tunic that I'm just going to be taking around everywhere. So I'm just going to meet with everybody because I've got these other two things even after that that are coming down that by then I'll start having like private demos. I'll start having, which won't be coming out for like two or three years, but sort of slotting in something or two somethings, especially when we're in like early development phase on like what Finji's going to make next is like, yeah, keeping everything running smoothly, but also putting our projects next to beautiful things that both me and Adam want to work on. Um, at the end of the day, like everything we take on is something that we, if we were part of that team, we'd be so happy to work on that game every single day because towards launch, we are working on it 40 hours a week. Right. Yeah. And I think the, when, if you make your own games and you occasionally are publishing another game, whatever you're publishing has to be so good that you're perfectly fine not working on your own yeah. sweet darling baby game that you yeah. love more than any game on the planet, like actually pausing that and putting cycles into somebody else's game. I think I I've been happy so far with the kind of pressure that that puts on us in terms of, um, curation and what kind of projects do we talk to and what kind of projects are we interested in and stuff like that, because it makes it so easy to, you know, part of these relationships is promoting these games and it's, um, I don't have to bring, a sheet of bullet points with me to talk to somebody about no. what's cool about tunic. Right. Like, or any of our games, no. like when we show up, we can, we're so excited about it. Like it's our own project. Yeah. But like, I know I am so excited about Wilmot's warehouse yeah. that I will stop working on overland stuff. The game that I love so much that I'm still working on it after like five and a half years or whatever. Like I will take a break from doing overland stuff just so that I can, um, get a chance to be involved with Wilmot's warehouse yeah. a little bit. Um, and that is like, that's the determining factor. Like right. if we don't have the motivation to do that, we know that we're not going to do a super good job representing the title or whatever yeah. that mm. comes from. And we're also going to have a hard time setting aside, like setting down our darling projects that we thought up on our own uh, to put time and energy into something else. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't always mean that those are necessarily like, you know, objectively the greatest games ever made, but we do have to love them mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And I think that pressure is good. Like, then you've seen it, like when we go to our show floors, like at PAX and stuff, like all of my games, which are my game and all the games that I'm publishing sit next to each other. Yeah. Like we have like little besties on my little eight stations and like, and they're drastically different they're games. They're different genres. They're different art styles, different color schemes. They are like different audience bases either. But like our end goal is like, if you love Night in the Woods, we're pretty sure that you'll have a interest in the other three titles that you're seeing in my booth because we love all of them. Like as creators, these games sitting next to each other in our booth make us so happy and we love playing all of them. So like... The idea that somebody is just tied to one single genre um, is just wrong. Um, you do like casual games and you do like hardcore games and you do like story-based games. 
and we like our goal is to be like this is this these games share all of our taste we're not weird unicorns we're pretty sure that this will share all of your taste as well everything here one way or another is beautiful and thoughtful and genuinely interesting Mm -hmm. and new some piece of it really is new and hasn't been done before and is a new thing that like if you um, even if you're not super into video games as a whole like these are hopefully pieces of media that are um, not impossible to access and um, you'll have an experience in there that is unlike anything else you've had in any other game. And I like, and that that's like the one piece that I think is actually true for everything that we've been putting out under our sweet weasel logo. <laughs> uh, like that this is the one thing that combines, like if you're trying to figure out how like panoramical night in the woods, Feist, uh, Tunic, Woman's Warehouse, and Overland all fit together. Like, what's the one thing that, like, an abstract musical synthesizer has in common with a tactics game, which has in common with a story game? Um, Like, it's that uh, you don't have to have played 50 other video games in order to get into this one, and that you haven't, even if you have played 50 other video games, you haven't played one like this before. And um, I think I, I would be so happy if we are allowed to continue doing this yeah for the foreseeable future Mm -hmm. yeah well so and then the last question is and we kind of talked about it a little bit before we started recording and my buddy sam lotion posited this is like uh you mentioned you know shorter dev cycles six months or something like that or like you know self-publishing and people that are aspiring indie devs are currently trying to get their first project off the ground like um, his question was, you know, if, if, if the scope of your games always tried to maintain that Cannabalt style size thing or focused on mobile or, or however, whatever the platform might be like, what, what would be the approach for that contemporarily? Cause I mean, I know Cannabalt's pretty distant now and like, um, like I've talked to Mike Bithel before and people ask him like, you know, what would you do? Like how, how would like the success of Thomas of was alone like what would you do to emulate that again and he's like well i'll go back in time yeah i think mike is an interesting example actually because um he's been putting out um pretty interesting games at a i think above average pace for a small studio yes uh and i uh, i would i think the same thing is true of zach gage's work mm-hmm. and there's a couple other people and one thing that they almost all have in common and there's a few other mobile studios i think that we could point at um and samoga was doing this really well for a while too um and i think changed started changing pace for the same reasons that we did actually um in terms of like whether to focus exclusively on mobile or not but the one thing that a lot of these studios have in common is they are um uh sharing a lot of stuff between each game Mm. so even if you are maybe uh not doing a sequel exactly um maybe these games kind of are, are all still in a family still um, so I think if you look collectively at Zach Gage's work over the last few years, uh, uh, as mobile apps alone, and you're not talking about board games or, uh, installations or anything like that. If you look at just the mobile apps, they, there are these through lines, there are graphic design through lines. He doesn't have to reinvent he, you know, every game is new, but he doesn't have to reinvent the entire graphic design expression of the basic, um, presentation rules from scratch every single time. 
Um, there are uh, there are typography similarities. There are sort of graphic design rules that are shared between the games. Um, you know, um, Mike might uh, have um, like a new sort of tactical shooter um, that could heavily reference a tactical shooter that he was um, working on a couple years ago or could make a brand new story game um, based on the work that he's done in the previous story game yeah. um, that's set in the same universe. Like, uh, and I don't think that is a, a coincidence. I think um, one thing that we've been learning about Overland is the amount of sort of R&D basically, um, which mm -hmm. sounds more impressive than it is, but the amount of trial and error and figuring out what works um, is so time consuming. Yeah. When you put uh, five years into building like a systems engine, I mean, it's built in unity, but like we have all of this framework sitting around, but also when you look at something like night in the woods, we have an entire framework for something, how night in the woods works. Are you going to throw away two years of that development when you make your new project or not? Or are you yeah. going to improve upon the framework and start or instead of starting from like, scratch? Um, we picked up uh, Overland has a bunch of sort of UI practices in it that are really interesting, mostly recyclable UI practices for turn-based games. So I I do I feel a certain amount of pressure for like well whatever we do next if it's real time a lot of this stuff is going to get thrown out. We can probably reference some of it still mm -hmm. and I hope that we do but um it's going to feel it'll feel tricky to try to like reboot this thing from scratch. So I think that's part of it is this intelligent sharing of um either the uh, sort of universe that you built for another game or the graphic design rules that you built for another game or the basic subject matter that you're exploring in another game or the basic gameplay that you're exploring. Those things are important. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, I think, is um, that while I think it's a practical and viable business model, there can be the sustainability part of it gets tricky. Mm -hmm. So if you do... Um, say more our style of development where over the course of three years, you put out maybe two to three games um, produced by two to three different teams. Um, the amount of downstream maintenance that has to be done on those titles is um, there's only one title for each team to maintain after three full years of development. Uh, and that's all you have to do. Uh, if you are putting out say two mobile games a year for three years, at the end of three years, you have six titles that have to be drastically updated every time a phone with a different resolution comes out. Right. Or, hey, they have to be 64-bit now. Yep. Yep. This uh, was like one of the, the phone main... has a little notch on one yeah. side now, and you have to change all the displays around that. This is one of the main frustrating things about like our old mobile development was just like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? And yeah. why we always farmed out Android. Because like, we just yeah. were like in-house, we're like, nope. There's no and way we can. Keep it doesn't up mean with it's this. a non-starter. It doesn't make the. It doesn't make it a bad business plan. But you have but, to think through it. Yeah, and and be prepared for that to be part of it, and not to be like, well, we put the game out, washing my hands of that, and moving on with my day. It's like, no, no, these are what you're building. If you're doing a sort of, I would call this like a portfolio-based approach, where you're, you know, expanding on previous work, and and mm -hmm. you're um, making this big sort of network of games, almost that sort of have a relationship to each other um, and you're able to try lots of different things more and more often. Like there's so many good things about this approach, but a portfolio approach does uh, have a maintenance cost that is 
that is part of your dev schedule personal yeah like you have to you want to you're going to want to be able to either know that your ability to continue to produce new games on this schedule is going to be impacted by maintaining the catalog you already have or your studio is going to have to grow in order to have staff who can help you to maintain these titles, which is what a lot of um, what I think uh, both Zach and Mike and other people who are doing this model, um, they have done maintenance-based studio growth. Uh, And Mike Mike has told me um, that he's also very interested in like the, the entirety of the dev cycle. And as, as yes, he tries to like experience it as, as much as he can, because yeah. mm-hmm. like if you only see the first three fourths, then like yeah. that, that last, that last 25% yeah. is the hardest. And, and a lot of people really defensively, I think like the last 25% for a lot of games happens after the game is done and it's already out. Yeah. Uh, it's not even like, Oh, finishing this game is hard. It's like, no, I already finished it. I don't want to work on it anymore. Get mm-hmm. it out of my face. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also like a defensible feeling to have about your artwork. Uh, and um, some people just aren't, don't want that. And uh, I think would be unpleasantly, unpleasantly surprised yeah. by that being put in their laps. Beca- just because I think a lot of people who are drawn to the notion of putting out a couple of original pieces of commercial art every year are people who like variety. Uh, there are people who like getting to move on to new things. And so getting surprised with these maintenance things after the fact, I think can be pretty gnarly. Do you think this ties into like, you know, like the death of Flash, like that kind of stuff where it's like, oh, my stuff can no longer be maintained or like, you know, I I, I am like I have to look in the face of like my projects that I finally could put aside and well part of it is I think long term you don't want these projects to die and become invisible right you don't want your projects to obsolesce out after six to twelve months because then you're losing a lot of the a lot of the long-term benefits of having like a portfolio or having a game Mm -hmm. catalog. You want people who are playing one of your games and loving it to be able to go get more of them and play more games like that, that share that sensibility. Uh, That's a good thing. Uh, But yeah, I think there's sometimes there can be this clash between trying to satisfy all of those things, but also satisfy this um, tension between, you know, wanting to move on and make new things and explore and find variety and as well as go back and tediously maintain all this stuff that you're tired of working on already. Um, that part can be tricky for some people. Yeah. Um, but if you figure out how you want to engage with that and what makes sense for you, then I think it's like a, it's a pretty good way of making things. Cause like our system has plenty of risks. This uh, spend three to six years making something huge and hope that by the time you're done making it, people still think that the idea that you had three to six years ago is cool enough to go explore it. Also a risky model that is tricky and has emotional baggage and is complicated to navigate. The alternative of this, of the first version of like making multiple things a year, like there's the maintenance cost, but also there's a creative burnout that we see often with people who attempt this where like they feel so much pressure to attempt to make something that it's like, they're always prototyping and like there's not, I don't have any more good ideas this year. What do I do? And that's like, I was talking to a kid actually maybe on the Michigan discord, the Michigan game dev discord about this 
Um, I was like, you have to think through that. Like if you say, I'm going to put out a game every eight weeks and that's what you're telling your people who are getting your games. Cause they were like a, they were talking about like a subscription based giving games every eight week thing that they were going to run on their own website. I was like, you have to make a game on that schedule. Like, and that has its own set of wild when people sometimes see things like and TV problems. shows and they go like, oh, we could do like TV shows, but for games or something. And it's like that TV show was done being made before they put it on TV. You know that, right? Like they don't, they're most of the time, most of the time, not just shooting the up. Ep- like they don't put an episode up on Tuesday and go, that went well. Let's make the one for next Tuesday. Like that's not really no. how, like they might be making a show every week, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some production things there that I think can be tricky, but, mm-hmm. um, Adam I, did a game a week for a contract once and it nearly yeah, almost him. died, I think, yeah. <laughs> but it was um, bad. Adriel did one for fun. Didn't she for a while? Uh, yeah. Adriel did it, it like did her blog for a year yeah. or whatever. It's like a game a week. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she also will talk about how hard that was. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, the other thing too, is I think is like, um, sometimes these focuses change. Like I, I, I thought that I would always only really want to make flash games and mobile games for my whole career. I figured that was like, mm-hmm. this is what I like to do. I don't like making big, complicated games, like making little tiny, neat, elegant games. And my interests have kind of shifted. Like I, th- I have found a lot of, um, really interesting things to think about and making a slightly bigger, slightly messier game. That's a little bit harder to understand at first. And that, um, takes a little more time to like pull the pieces apart and see how they really fit together. And what is it? What do you, what do these pieces mean together in the long term? And what kinds of like, what kinds of things can you do with a big game that you can't do with a small game? Like, uh, in terms of pacing and play styles and the experiences that people have. Um, and those are things that are, a lot more interesting to me just in the last few years than they ever possibly could have been like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. When Cannonball was made. Yeah. So I think one of some of these things uh, too are might in the long term be about like, you know, finding, finding business models or finding commercial ways to support yourself while you do the kind of work that you need to do at the time and not necessarily sort of be like, we'll found this 10 year studio on a vision of making a particular kind of game in a particular kind of way. Cause you're going to be a different person in three months, much less three years or five years or 10 years. Your interest as a designer can and will absolutely change. Yeah. I think I went from really being mainly interested in like, Mario Brothers and Magic the Gathering kind of experiences, which are amazing, totally valid experiences to having these kind of more niche um, uh, things that I feel like are being, you know, I think what's an, uh, I'm interrupting myself, which is a bad habit. Uh, There, we, a thing we talk about often and often we often feel intensely I think is that there are a lot of really cool games to be made and there are a lot of cool possible game ideas but a lot of them are being made already um 
I'm not, I don't feel a lot of intense pressure to make a really good platformer because I feel like other people are doing such a good job of that. We don't feel a lot of pressure to make games about shooting robots in the face because like there's other people that are making very good games about shooting robots in faces. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't feel a lot of pressure to make a Metroid game, even though I love Metroid style games, because I know there are developers out there who are knocking that out of the park. And so I think um, a thing that people, your design interests and the things that you're interested in exploring, I think are going to um, probably naturally evolve over time, both to avoid competition, but also to kind of like engage with your increasingly sort of esoteric tastes as you explore and find things that you like. I think it may, it may be relatively natural to gravitate toward unexplored areas. And I think this is something that's actually very true of Zach and Mike's work. Like a lot of Zach's commercial mobile work I know is motivated by the idea that um, people aren't making interesting classic games anymore. People aren't coming up with new interesting card games that are just a deck of poker cards or a handful of dice or whatever. Um, uh, things that people would know and be familiar with, but would want a fun new activity to do with them. Uh, and, um, you know, Mike wanting to do these kind of um, detective stories that have a little bit more of a kind of clean cut, um, less cartoony presentation in a lot of ways uh, and feeling like that's an itch that's not really being scratched. Uh, and I think, you know, I think there's a thing as a designer, you start to detect these areas where you have a lot of interest and where you feel like um, maybe if you don't make that game, nobody will. Uh, and this is totally the case for Overland. Yeah. No one would have made this game. Nope. <laughs> um, and frequently for a good reason, <laughs> good reason. it turns yeah. out. But uh, you may find that when you are, when you have found that thing, um, that that will determine what size of game you make more than your predilections for a random schedule uh, or a specific format that you've decided you like in other people's work. It You may have those predilections and those tastes and those interests and those desires, but um, find yourself in a place where you're like, man, but there's this stuff that nobody else, if I don't make this, nobody's going to make it. And I think I would be good at it too. Like and Overland. so this is what I'm making now, even though I maybe only made a bunch of flash games before and yeah. I'm like not cut out to do a lot of this yet. Overland started out as a like 2d grid like it was supposed to be an iPad project it made in nine months. Mm -hmm. Like that's what the game started out as. And like, you can see kind of now what it has become. So like, yeah, I don't know. Like it started out as a project like Cannibalt and like hundreds that we could put on multiple things. And it has morphed into something bigger and more because that's what was there. Yeah. In a in lot of ways, process. I think like we make that kind of game now because that's the kind of game that we've ended up making or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Yep. It, it, it becomes kind of a tautology just in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but being, if you're a little bit aware that that's a thing that could happen and you're trying to um, plan the sort of um, business practical support side of your operation to be able to accommodate <laughs> that. shaking her head. <laughs> Hey, babe. Are we going to do I'm, the thing? No. We're going to do the bit? No. Are you sure? Positive. Okay. It's it's wild how flexible you have to be. That's the bit that I want to yes. do. Like, when you're, like, 
in that weird transition phase, which at that point we didn't really know we were in. Mm-mm. But the the transition piece of that, like the amount, now that I'm looking back, the amount of flexibility that was required was like... It was more than we could do. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And we uh, didn't know even then what we were making. Um, but it's cool now to see it, especially when we support a project like Tunic, mm-hmm. um, which has had kind of a very similar evolution of it started out as this like much smaller thing and it's gotten to be this much bigger thing. Um, like to kind of be like, it's okay. Like this is an okay thing that you're going to experience. And like, we have seen it happen before. It is achievable. It is it's, achievable. A, it's okay. Yeah. If it changes scope, it's okay. If your interests and design capabilities mature over the yeah. course of a project and, and you become capable of doing more before it's and done. It's, and maybe that's the right opportunity yeah. and at it's that o- time. It's okay that the business needs of that change as well. And that yeah. was like a really important thing for me to understand and sort of live through and learn kind of with Overland internally, because uh, what you start out with and what you end up with are going to be often wildly different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that can happen on like a six to nine month timeline but also your six to nine month timeline might turn into like wow i'm making this like really big thing and if you're a business producer and or a creative producer figuring out what to do about these kinds of decisions is really hard because i think normally flexibility can make you really anxious yeah well normally it'd be like ooh, we're gonna we're gonna miss our our, we're gonna slip our dates by a factor of 10 like slipping (laughs) your dates by a factor of one is usually a pretty yeah. big problem right? and a, a sign that you have failed as a producer. But I think part of, to us, it certainly has come to feel like having good taste and realizing when these expansions could work out that maybe sometimes it's okay if it scopes up or the game itself has needs that you didn't anticipate and you can try to, Mm -hmm. you can try to meet those needs because it's going to uh, allow you to explore something that you wouldn't be able to explore otherwise. Like sometimes that is okay to do. Um, uh, Or sometimes you can do like, um, like the other thing that people do is they realize partway through like, Oh my God, there's three games worth of content in this game. What am I going to do? They just put out the first one. And then they start working on the second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay. Like that's a thing that we lost, I think as Indies to some degree. And um, Sarah Northway always makes a really good case for this. I think um, I don't know, so I'm just badly paraphrasing her here, but like it's, it's literally okay to make sequels to stuff. You're allowed to do that. It's okay. It's not, um, it's not a bad thing to do. And a lot of why sequels have existed um, part of why sequels have existed at least for a long time is that people couldn't practically get to yeah. all the cool stuff they wanted to get to in the first game. And somebody at some point drew a line and said like, that's going in the second one. If we're allowed to make it too bad. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a super mm-hmm. valid approach to yeah. this stuff too. I don't think it has to be, you know, you don't have to do these battleship size games. Um, if you don't want to, there are like, there are other options, but I think if you're, um, if you find yourself drifting into a place where if you find yourself making a battleship game on accident, a real big boy, a real big aircraft carrier of a game, um, I don't think you necessarily have to feel bad about it, but I would think really, really hard. And I think that's one thing that we did do. Probably we started too late, but something that we've been 
really vigilant about yes. for the last few years is going like, holy crap, what happened? This game is the size of a tectonic plate now, and that's not what we set out to yes. do. But we have we've been having meetings to continue like it's like you draw a box around something like this is the game I'm having. And every once in a while that wall breaks out a little bit and you have to like refocus and be like the fucking wall broke. <laughs> we need to like draw the wall back down like this is yeah. cool. And this is arguably an awesome idea for this game. But we cannot in good conscience like put this in, it will blow out the schedule so much. And, and like, sometimes it feels like you're like, and having you, business kind of help draw those constraints yeah. is what really you're like digging a hole. You're digging a hole. You're like, we've almost got our hole dug. This is our game. Our game is this big, deep hole in the ground and the boss is at the bottom and it's really good. And you're partway down digging the hole and you like, it knock granted. out a wall <laughs> and there's a big hollow chamber oh, yeah. Yeah. right next to where you've been digging. And it's all full of sparkly gems. And you're just like, Oh, I know we're supposed to keep digging down, yeah. but like we just, there's over, right there. over here. Ooh, what it's do we so do? It's so pretty. It's um, such a good idea. And it's and like, I think there's like a producer dogma of like too bad. Keep digging down. And it's like, how much of those know. gems can you steal as you're driving by? <laughs> yeah. Or like maybe like, like can you reach in and grab? If you haven't, if you've been digging for a long time and you found jack shit and you just accidentally yeah. stumbled on a buried pirate treasure, maybe fucking take it. Yeah. Maybe that's your pirate treasure now. Uh, and that's okay because you've been digging a weird hole for a long time. Uh, and yeah, that can just, it can mean different things. So I think, um, I think it's good to, to be, to think critically about, how you're going to put out games, what size they're going to be. Mm -hmm. um, what does that take in the short term and the long term to support, but also to realize that like these things might shift under your feet yep. for reasons that are outside of your control. It might be changes in the game industry. It might be changes in your taste as a creator. It might be changes to your family. It might be changes to who you have access to collaborating with. Um, there are so many factors and this, um, you know, it's a, it's a trope at this point, but the idea that, you know, uh, it's maybe it's better to be good at making plans than to have a good plan. I, I think it's something that's been really yeah. consistently true um, for us. Not that we've uh, not to retrospectively assign that every decision we've made has been no, good. They've been bad. Um, they've been, been tremendously bad in various points where we can identify like, eh, it was pretty stupid. We just got lucky that it didn't blow up in our faces. Yeah. Numerous wacky, unjustifiable decisions, but um, this constantly doubling down on like, Oh, the situation has changed time for a new plan. Yep. We should, we should and think to, about yeah, these things. Think again. critically about like the decision that you made and understand like where you messed up. So then you can try to control or, for it in know, the future. Cause people always say like, well, rules are meant to be broken or you should learn all the rules before you break them or whatever. But I think um, the version of that for us is like, yeah, learn the rules, know what's sensible to do. And if you're getting a strong feeling that you need to do something that's quote unquote against the rules, that's a good time to have a meeting Yeah, <laughs> and, and talk about it first. Yeah. Meeting before breaking the rules. Got yes. It. Have a meeting about which rules you're going to break and why. And which uh, ones because are Because these things are so effect. contextual. They're so like, situational. The yeah. rules are constantly shifting. Yes. So you're like, is this still the rule? Yeah. Like, am I am I approaching this problem yeah. in the way that the matters? Protocol still? Yeah, this was a rule five years ago. Actually, it's yeah. not anymore, and we were still following it. That's not a good idea yeah. versus, yeah. like, you know what? Everybody else is doing this right now, but um, 
there's a one key difference between our project and their projects and following, trying to do what they're doing is making us super nervous. And I think we have to do it sure. slightly differently and we sh- but that should be a meeting. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, rules, holes, pirate treasure. I think it's a good place to, to end on. <laughs> uh, guys, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, of course. To talk, to talk to me, always enjoy. Thank you for talk. having a place that has air conditioning. Of course, yes, it's a, a hot commodity in this city, apparently. <laughs> it um, is. And me, I only brought collared shirts and jeans. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so great choices all around. Yeah. Um, Adam, Becca, where can people find all of your work, all of your stuff? Yeah, we obviously are on the internets. Um, if you go to Finji F I N J I dot C O, that's kind of our main website. Um, you can yeah. look up. There's like info there about games yep. and events and news and yep. uh, all sorts of good stuff. And we're also on the Twitters. So Harris, our community manager, kind of manages all of our internal Twitter accounts. So it's uh, F-I-N-J-I-C-O. Um, and you can also follow just like our individual games as well. Um, and then that has all the links to like the discords and kind of like at wizards, at Finjico, at Overland Game, at. Tunic, tunic game. game. Is it tunic underscore game? I think it's just tunic it's game. Maybe one oh, word. you might know. You might be right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, I was looking up the other day and I can't at, remember. We have at Wilmot's game, which is uh, a, a marvelous sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, encyclopedia of, of every weird abstract product in Wilmot's warehouse that's growing yep. every day. That's, a, that's turning out pretty good. You can follow just at Night in the Woods if you want to follow along with that game. Mm. Um Kind of all over the place, but the cool thing is if you go to just the Finjico website, yeah. you can figure out all of our titles and then, yeah, hop out on the internet for everything else. Got a yeah. good, 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 chill, Nazi-free Discord that folks can check out. Good Discord. Um, there's a, a cool day. admin on there. I heard. Yes. <laughs> some, yeah. Some dope mods. Uh, got, we got some tight bots. Tight bots. Um, <laughs> all about tight bots. Yeah. Uh, I love our yeah. Discord. Yeah. yeah, we're kind of sprinkled around, but um, uh, yeah, f- uh, we. W- I mean, obviously, we would love for folks to check out the games because they're like e- everything. Again, like everything that we touch, we think we're so in love with it that we're willing mm-hmm. to set aside, literally set aside our own personal yeah. work to invest time in it. Um, which is the um, as as a workaholic, like the highest. Mm-hmm. Uh, highest recommendation I can give someone else's marvelous weird piece of art. So. Yeah, yeah. Two events that we're going to be coming up on. If you want to just like meet us or whatever, um, I'll be at Gamescom for a little bit uh, in Germany in August, and then the week after, there's going to be a ton of us at PAX West. Yep, 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 yep. Um, and yeah, definitely. If 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 you want to be part of a cool community, the Finji Discord is an awesome place to be. And on a personal note, you know, I love being a part of. The greater Finji family. I love, you know, <laughs> hanging out with you guys, being able to talk to you. It's it's awesome. You guys are awesome people. and We and love you too, Dylan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but on that note, well, I guess I'll see you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.